Now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this edition of the programme, image and object in shaping national memory around the 1916 Rising. In the 1980s, when I was facing all of these challenges, that embittered debate was largely conducted on the basis of what the archives said, what the manuscripts said and what the published sources said. Historians were extraordinarily reluctant to get involved with any consideration of material and visual history in that regard. So we're quite interested in objects in contemporary culture. We're part of the consumer society and the kind of ethics and moral challenges around that in the contemporary cultural context. Making 1916 is a collection of essays on the role material and visual culture has had in creating a historical narrative out of the events of the Easter Rising of 1916. More than 20 scholars across archaeology, design history, photography and history of art consider how the things, the objects and images from 1916 helped to forge both official history and sometimes provide unexpected insights into human stories from that pivotal event in the nation's making. Joining me to discuss the book, its themes, things and conclusions are its editors, Lisa Godson in Dublin and Joanna Brooke from Studio in Bristol, Brian Crowley, curator of the Pierce Museum in Dublin and Elizabeth Crook, professor of Museum and Heritage Studies at Ulster University, who joins us from Studio in Derry. Both of them have contributed to the book and we'll also hear from another contributor, Pat Cook, director of the MA in Cultural Policy and Management at University College Dublin. Many Fascinating things in the book, all of them shedding light on how cultural history is made. Before we talk about what's in there, and there's a lot, can I ask the editors how you came to shape this particular series of studies, each of you from very different academic areas? Lisa, what spurred you to to this field? Well, my background is history of art and then history of design, where I've really focused on looking at the history of everyday objects, rituals and spaces. And I met Jo, who is an archaeologist, when UCD, where she used to work, and the National College of Art and Design, where I work, brought academics together to see if there was a possibility of collaboration. And we found that we're both interested in material culture and in particular in interdisciplinary approaches. So people from a range of fields who study objects, spaces and images in everyday life. So we started out by putting on a series of seminars about interdisciplinary approaches to material culture and then from that the idea of holding a conference on the material culture of 1916 arose and this book then is a further iteration of that project. When we talk about material culture, what precisely does that mean and include? The way it's usually understood, I suppose, is in terms of objects and how they operate in social and cultural worlds as much as in terms of aesthetics or stylistic categories that would be more typical if we're thinking about the history of art. But material culture could also mean how gestures are culturally influenced, how the landscape is understood and approached, how rituals and ceremonies are performed. So it goes beyond objects to include almost everything in the material world, our attitude to it and how it shapes us and how we shape it. Joanna Brooke, what drew you to consider the the impact of image and object and material culture in our understanding of the Easter Rising? 
Well, as Lisa mentioned, I'm an archaeologist, and I was very interested not only in what different disciplinary perspectives could bring to the table, but also what archaeology had to offer, potentially, to studies of the rising. Because, of course, archaeology we tend to think of as being something that can contribute to our understanding of the distant past. But archaeology can potentially document the details of what happened on the ground in the rising. And we have some lovely essays in the book, Frank Miles's discussion, for example, of the events in Moore Street. But also, I suppose that archaeology is really well placed to understand the relationship between personal experience and historical process, because we've had a long-standing interest and focus on the material world in its broadest possible sense, and the role of the material world, objects, landscapes, monuments, buildings, etc., in the performance of social identity and the maintenance of cultural values. In general, when we think of archaeology, we think way back I know you typically deal with prehistory in the Bronze Age. So, I mean, this is a, a very different realm, uh, but there is an amount of digging to be done and objects to be found and taken out into the light, even in relation to 1916. Yes, that's right. And I have done a little bit of research in Stevens Green geophysical survey trying to identify the location of the trenches that the rebels dug in St. Stephen's Green and also looking at the moment of doing some field work at Frongoch in North Wales where the rebels were interned in the immediate aftermath of the rising. Again I did a little bit of geophysics there last year and would like to follow that up at some point hopefully soon in thinking about how internees used objects to deal with their experience of internment, how the materiality of internment in terms of their use of space, their placement within the, the landscape, the relationship between the internees and their guards between the internees and local Welsh population and so on, you can use archaeological information in terms of finds and buildings and the way in which the the camp might have been laid out to to consider how people dealt with that experience and then to to think about how that experience then impacted on um, people's subsequent role in the War of Independence, for example. So there is a lot we can think about in relation to materiality in terms of people's political perspectives, their social identity, their cultural values, how they use objects to negotiate and to reflect on all of those different things. Lisa, how did you you seek to establish a kind of common language between the various disciplines covered in the book? We were quite conscious that there were a number of people working across a number of different fields um, outside the typical political history or even Irish literature that had done some research on, on the rising. So we found that at the conference there were quite a number of cross-currents between the different projects, even between, say, practising artists like Brian Hand and Daniel Dewsbury, and then more conventional curators and historians. We found there were a number of themes that kept emerging, and it really felt like there has been a shift maybe over the last decade in Irish history writing where the everyday and cultural experience has become much more central. And I suppose that was one of the strongest linking factors was that everybody was interested in objects, not just for the objects themselves, but also for what they could open up in in terms of understanding historical experience. And, And I think that comes through a lot of the time there's a reflection on how we understand 1916 now. So that theme of memory comes through very strongly, whether it's official memory or personal memory. So, so that was another uh, strong theme that seemed to run through the essays. So we didn't have to put in a huge amount of work to try and find common ground between them, I think. Uh, Joanna, were you conscious at all that you were yourselves creating a, a kind of material object, a book that will in time be seen in the context of this time of commemoration 
and to a certain extent reconsideration, if not revision, of, of the rebellion of 1916. Inevitably, what we, we do is, does provide a window on our own times and the way in which we, we think about the past, in particular events in the past. And I think that objects and, and memory, those two key themes, come out very, very strongly, of course, and they speak to particular interests and concerns in the present day, I think, very strongly. People are interested in objects. There's a lot of discussion across many academic disciplines about materiality in its broadest possible sense. It is a period of dramatic social change, and objects in that provide that sense of stability and permanence, although, of course, that's also an illusion. We have this quite ambivalent relationship with objects also, I think, today, in the sense that you know we're part of the consumer society and the kind of ethics and moral challenges around that. And of course the, the virtual world is, is becoming so much more a part and parcel of how we, we live our lives. And there are some wonderful objects uh, displayed in the book, great photos and images. I love the toffee axe from Sackville Street, uh, a sweet shop. They're reputedly thrown by a looter at a Mr. Daly. Um, and I suppose Cleves toffee takes on a whole new meaning in, in the light of that. Uh, or the detail of the cricket bat from Elvery Sports Shop. Again, Sackville Street, now O'Connell Street. Kept for generations, Lisa, in the family with a rifle bullet from 1916 launched in it. Brenda Malone, who works in the National Museum and is one of the contributors to the book, she has a fantastic blog called The Cricket Bat That Died for Ireland, (laughs) which uh, focuses on cultural artefacts uh, associated with with 1916. So there's an awful lot of these quite funny stories where on, on the one hand you've got these objects that become almost sacred like the tricolor or James Connolly's vest that he, he was wearing when he was shot and then you also have the other side of it which I suppose is the looting and so on and maybe the, the glee with which objects were seized by Dubliners during the rising so, so if we think of it in, in relation to objects the, there's still an awful lot more to explore I think out there. Uh, Brian Crowley you've been the curator of the Pierce Museum of Dublin for many years now what did you want to present in your essay what kind of side of Porrick Pierce in relation to material culture in particular? Well, I suppose the, the key word is iconic, a word people kind of throw around quite a lot, but in, in, in Pierce's case, it's, it's, I suppose, literally true that this image of Pierce after the Rising becomes an icon and is represented in a very much a kind of a, almost a religious way. And I suppose what I was trying to look at was the origins of, of that profile, the surprising origins insofar as it comes in many ways out of an insecurity within himself and that Pierce is somebody who's deeply self-conscious about his image, but also very self-aware of how that image will be perceived. And it's looking at how that has these kind of various iterations and this manifestation, and also the extent to which our image of Pierce uh, is so much bound up in that iconic side profile that is reproduced in bronze and, and marble, and how that image has in some ways distanced us from the real person along maybe with the GPO, he's the one symbol of the 1916 Rising that everybody understands. If you're doing a, a newspaper supplement or you you want to do a visual shorthand for the 1916 Rising, you just stick Pierce's profile. And in. it's that profile. It's him looking away, in a sense. Yeah. Looking away, and you don't quite know whether it's looking into the past, looking into the future. And it's supposed to be the good side of his face, I mean, the, the side, the profile that he liked to have seen. Yeah, um, he had a, a lazy eye, which was only noticeable if you had the, the kind of full face uh, view when he was alive, of course, it's, it's the early years of photography, so you still can very much control how your image is taken. But what's very interesting about Pierce is he's also there at the cusp of the amateur photographer, the, the casual snap. The more I looked into it, the more I started to realise, well, how come 
you know, as this develops, he's still we're still getting him by profile. And then you discover he's actually holding his head in a particular way because of this self-consciousness. And I said, well, that's a really interesting insight into a very complex individual. And it, again, really interesting detail on his childhood and, you know, growing up with the tap tapping of his father as a stonemason working in stone and him then acting as a, as a model uh, and being really proud of that, that he was the object uh, of scrutiny and reproduction. He's incredibly sophisticated in terms of his understanding of visual culture as a result. So he, he grows up living over the shop, as it were, of his father's uh, uh, sculptural business. In what's now Pier Street. In, in yeah. what's now Pier Street. And then his father is also is one of these kind of Victorian autodidacts. So he has these amazing books illustrated with engravings by Dore and collects images and books from covering a wide uh, number of subjects. Uh, and as a result, then Pierce brings this visual sophistication and this awareness of spectacle into everything he does. So you can see it in his drama, uh, work in, the sc- in his school. And ultimately, of course, you can see it in the 1916 Rising because ultimately the Rising is successful because of its symbolic power. And he realises this. And the things that he really contributes to are, I suppose, things like that reading of the, of the proclamation, but also the surrender, which I think is a really interesting moment where it's almost stage-managed by Pierce. One of the things Pierce is often slightly ridiculed over is the fact that he brought a sword to the 1916 Rising and he's kind of dismissed as a this romantic person looking to the past. But actually, when you see the surrender photograph, that's when this sword becomes hugely important. He's facing all the pomp and the majesty of the British Army, which can do pomp and ceremony like no other organisation, and he's able to meet that by handing over his sword and being there in his uniform. And he turns what could be a horrible defeat into something that has dignity, something that people can latch onto. So in that moment, you know, he contributes to the trans- transformation of this rising from, as I said, from a defeat into, uh, a, a, I suppose, a, a symbolic victory. Brilliant use of symbolism. Yeah. The, the, you know, the sword of light, Clive Sullivan, all of that. And he must have been so aware of, of the power of symbolism. Uh, among other things, he's a playwright. He's in his school. He's specialised in these open air pageants things often that don't have words. So uh, it's really interesting, you know, because Pierce, is, I suppose his great strength is his, is his language, but he's also very visually aware in terms of, as I said, these, this pageant and this, um, this whole culture of pageants, which has been so uh, important in, in Ireland in the, in the years leading up to the Rising. I often feel that Pierce is the person who understands the 1916 Rising more than any of the other leaders. He, he knows because he's been immersing himself, I suppose, in the history of Irish revolution. So he knows exactly how powerful these stories and uh, and these tales of revolution can be. You also quote from, uh, uh, if you like, an open letter from himself to himself, which is very telling as well in, in terms of self-perception. Uh, where you're saying they're the two pierces. He, he set up a, a short-lived political newspaper in Irish called On Barbua. In it, he, he wrote a series of open letters to various uh, figures like John Dillon and Douglas Hyde. But he also writes one to himself, which is deeply revealing, where he talks about, you know, Pierce, you're too dark in yourself and you bring a dark cloud with you among the gale, when you go among the gale. And uh, he says, you don't make friends easily. Interestingly, he, he says, you know, uh, is it your English blood that causes this? And it reveals this, you know, Pierce's deeply uncomfortable in, in social situations. And he actually says that the only place that he's comfortable is among his pupils in St. Enda's or on a public stage. This would seem to be very true, that the social situations are, are, are places that he finds quite, I think, stressful and he's very un- uncomfortable in. When you see, again, that iconic image, it's so confident and there doesn't seem to be any doubt in that image. But 
behind that facade, there's a, a person who's deeply insecure about lots and lots of things. And of course, again, on materiality, uh, the Pearson Museum formerly sent down to school before that, the, the Hermitage of Fine Georgian House and mm. uh, the Footlands of Dublin of the mountains. And I suppose that could almost be described as a material object in itself. Oh, yeah, and it's really crucial in terms of understanding what Pierce was trying to do in terms of his school. He started his school in the Dublin suburbs in, in uh, Ranelagh and Cullenswood House. Uh, he's actually out visiting places associated with Robert Emmett, interestingly enough. And Rem- Emmett is a great hero of his. And he, uh, he's so enthused by a book by Stephen Gwynne about Emmett that he decides he goes to he must go and visit the places associated with him. And he finds this house where Emmett apparently used to secretly meet uh, his sweetheart, Sarah Curran. For him, his school, he wants his school not just to be a success in itself, but also to be an exemplar, to be an example for how Irish education must be. And for him, then he says uh, St. Endes has the highest aims in ed- education. It must have the worthiest home. He realises that, that St. Endes itself is going to be something of a performance, that it's going to be an a- example and it needs to have this grand backdrop. The other thing he discovers when he's there is the man who built the house, Edward Hudson, was an amateur antiquarian. Uh, and in the 18th century, instead of building garden follies based on kind of Greek ruins or, or Gothic ruins, he uses Irish field monuments as a... Uh, as an inspiration. So we have an 18th century Olmstone and an 18th century dolmen um, and a kind of a, a pseudo portal and almost ring fort. Pierce can see the, I suppose, the dramatic possibilities of this. This is the perfect backdrop for this uh, school, which he is, he is telling Irish society is a revival of the values and the heroic values of the past of Fionn McCool and, and Cúchulainn. The other interesting thing is that it, the property is known as the Hermitage uh, and there's a hermit's cave. And Pierce actually adopts this persona for a period of time in 1913 where he writes a series called From a Hermitage and adopts this idea of this uh, person who's taken himself away from society so he can comment on it. So it's really interesting to see how that physical place has a very profound effect on Pierce. His pupils say it was almost as if he was communing with the spirit of Emmett as he walked around. And I think that has a very profound effect in terms of where his life takes him in the next few years. Another contributor to the book is Pat Cook with his essay History, Materiality and the Myth of 1916. He argues that the period between the start of the Northern Ireland Troubles in 1969 and the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 was a time of deep revisionism. Um, I've been speaking to Pat Cook about his experience as director of Kilmainham Jail and the Pierce Museum and about the importance of curating and how it has changed over the years. When you were employed, when one was employed back then as a professional curator in the early 80s, you came with all of the traditional assumptions about what a curator was. That is, a person of authority who basically goes behind the scenes and takes out for public viewing those material elements of our history. And one makes up the narrative and the story on one's own, and you're meant to have the the competence, if you like, to do that. But bear in mind at this time, the North was unravelling. We had an intellectual climate in the country which was absolutely fraught between uh, revisionists and anti-revisionists. And it became pretty readily obvious to me that I had no real authority in any of these scenarios to be making large declarative statements based on material culture about history and its consequences. So the first instinct, the first realisation was I need allies. I need others working with me to explore 
the meaning of all of these things. So the the first insight, I suppose, was when we held a a, a, a sculptural, an open air sculpture uh, display in in the Pierce Museum, and I realised that artists can have a license to go into spaces that are fraught, traumatised, and sensitive in this kind of way. And my first instinct was the allies I really need here to curate this fraught history are artists with their license to go into those nervous kind of spaces. And having seen that work in Kilmaine in St. Endes in that way, when I then moved on to become curator of Kilmainham Jail, an even more daunting site with an even more synoptic history of nationalism and republicanism in modern Ireland, it felt natural to try and develop these artistic allies. And of course, that brings you very, very readily into the space of material culture, because visual artists have a way of symbolically entering history or creating ambivalent symbolic propositions about the past. And so, for instance, we had that major art exhibition in 1991 in a state in which 21 artists from North and South, Catholic and Protestant, responded to the kind of place that Kilmainham was. And what that was was open, exploratory, experimental. And it seemed to me that was the only way other than getting yourself nailed either to an, a revisionist or an anti-revisionist mass, that you were going to offer a fresh perspective on these things. The prompt for the, the 1991 in-estate exhibition was actually a kind of precursor exhibition by Brian Hand, who was a young artist at the time, came in to me and came in and said, I want to put on an exhibition in here exploring what this place means to me. And so Brian put on a one-man show in there. And Yobbs Grave, the very able curator in his own right, saw that and came back to me and said, I want to try something even more ambitious here. Yobbs and I worked together. And of course, Yobbs had all the connections with all of these great artists, so I want to pay him full credit for that. Created this magnificent show involving what are now some of our leading artists. I mean, you know, Dorothy Cross, Alice Marr, Robert Balla, all of these people were all part of that. Rita Duffy and all these other name-checking individuals uh, were part of that exhibition in 1991 and the whole thing I suppose was to to give as much freedom to each of those individual artists to respond as as freely as they liked to what they felt about the space and so we got some extraordinary interventions some of them you would say in a sense counterintuitive in the sense that they were deeply private as artists can be They, they they can they can make a almost a private intervention in a public space that deepens your understanding of that space as a public space. It's a, it's a paradoxical thing. So Alice Mara's powerful piece was a ball of briars, briars that she collected around that ruinous building at that time. And it was a meditation on the notion of cell, Chiel Wynan, the religious cell of Wynan the saint that's associated with it. The fact that her mother, I believe, had cancer at the time, the, the cancerous cell, of course, the cell of the prisoner, and these multiple, and the brain cell, and the brain tortured with its own thoughts as it is imprisoned, and all of these oh, fantastic multi-layering of so many different dimensions of what it, what it was to be in prison. Clearly, when you go back to something like the Inner State Exhibition in 1991, in this highly sensitive space, there were enormous anxieties within the Office of Public Works at the time about that kind of thing. But I had built a little track record for myself of showing the potential of exactly that kind of uh, intervention and how it could work with the Brian Hand exhibition, with the Open Air Sculpture exhibition in, in, in St. Enders in 1989. And somehow we managed to persuade them Jobston myself, that this would work. It wasn't necessarily going to be safe. In fact, there was a big risk involved with it. But 
because I think it was art, and this is the the most amazing thing that my career has taught me as a kind of a heritage sector manager, is how enormously powerful the arts are at garnering the freedom and the kind of trust that's invested in an artistic process that wouldn't even be invested in a normal historical exhibition process. That people were willing to trust these artists to actually use their voices to explore, use their creativity to explore this space. And that that was the most liberating thing of all, that even the state itself will go that extra bit to facilitate artistic expression in that way. Now, that wasn't always the case, as we know, because of our history with censorship of artistic expression in this country. So clearly we had travelled an enormous distance between the 1930s and even the 1980s so that that could even be allowed to happen by the state. Pat Cook there. Brian Crowley, you also... um organised a number of exhibitions uh, in the Pierce Museum. Yeah, it's a very important part of our programme is to include the work of of living artists. I suppose the the, the principal inspiration of that is the fact that the museum is dedicated to both Patrick and William Pierce, and William Pierce himself was was an artist. But also, I suppose earlier when I was talking about the importance of the actual place, Pierce moved his, his school there because he felt that there the boys would find inspiration in the natural world and in the, the sheer beauty of of its location. The idea of St. Enda's and the Pierce Museum still being a place that can inspire people to create is uh, an important part of the Pierce legacy that we're anxious to continue. And as Pat said, artists have access to ways of interpreting the past uh, that we don't, as uh, I suppose, as historical curators, particularly in, in terms of talking about, I suppose, the emotion of the past. And the other great advantage that they have is that they can have a point of view. As historical curators, the last thing uh, you want someone to do is go into your exhibition and say, oh, I can definitely see that this is your personal opinion, Brian Crowley. It, you know, it's supposed to be a space where people of differing opinions can find uh, a place for, for discussion. The, uh, I suppose the other thing is when you're talking about Pierce's school, it's so bound up with the ideas of creativity that can be very hard to represent in simply in, in objects from the past. And in some ways, if you see creativity in action, that explains what the school was about in a way that, you know, a thousand exhibitions could never do. So we've had a lot of uh, kind of drama in recent years as well. And we had some uh, young people from New Park Comprehensive doing a, a Shakespeare production out, outdoors. It gave me an insight into uh, what Pierce was trying to do with drama in uh, St. Enda's back in the early 1900s in a way that I I don't think I could have found from any number of kind of historical accounts. Elizabeth Crook, your essay in Making 1916 is a story of absence and recovery, the Easter rising in museums in Northern Ireland. And it's a fascinating glimpse into, as was the divided histories on this island. The official presentation of the history of 1916 has been a very different story in the six counties of the north and for obvious reasons. What has been absent in that narrative in Northern Ireland and what has been and is being recovered? I've looked at uh, the different ways museums will represent contested histories and what I've found is traditionally um, when a lot of our local museums were formed they didn't consider more difficult histories. Um, many curators came from an archaeology background or maybe a history of art background and they kept to the more the safer topics. But now curators are very engaged with what people find the most important. Museums are very keen to get involved in those recent histories and 
tackle the topics that traditionally have been far more difficult. So what is happening in museums now is that museums across the region are very much engaged in the what is called the decade of centenaries. And this entire framework for a museum programme is very much informed by um, the creative centenaries approach, which is one that is sort of trying to foster what they're calling ethical commemoration. So it is through that form of remembering together, trying to remember the entire decade, placing the likes of the rising in the broader context of what's happening nationally and internationally. So the, this is seen as a far more inclusive and far more shared way of remembering um, within museum spaces. So even if collections are absent from the museums, and it's very f- hard to get rising artefacts, for example, the museums are remembering in other ways that help us understand the consequences of this history and the relevance for us today. It was obviously a, a very different landscape in 1966 with the, the 50th um, anniversary of, of the Rising. I remember some of the objects that emerged uh, for that year, one of them being a rather lurid calendar uh, showing images of ambushes and IRA men in the hills and wounded volunteers in the GPO. And it, it really struck struck me at the time. It, it, it burned very deep into me. But I, I'm, I'm sure there was nothing, absolutely nothing like that in, in Northern Ireland at the time. Within museum collections, you couldn't really expect the Ulster Museum, for example, at that time to really have those sort of collections. Because for a start, it was very recent history. So often museums didn't have quite such recent history. Also, the museum at that time, and not not now, of course, but at that time, tied in with quite a unionist identity. But of course, the likes of the Ulster Museum has shifted massively from that position and now is very much engaged with um, the period. So the new history galleries uh, in the Ulster Museum, which was redisplayed really for the decade of centenaries. And you've got the large exhibition where they have put the proclamation on the wall and they have the Ulster Covenant side by side so that people can really look at the objects that can trigger really interesting stories um, and really interesting debate and discussion. Uh, one striking image in your essay uh, in, in that chapter is a, a postcard, a Christmas card designed by George Irvin. And his story is, is very interesting and, and his family's story in, in light of all this. Yes, the Irvine postcard is great. That um, postcard was purchased a number of years ago as a result of the Connection and Division project. And the purpose of that project was to address the fact that there are absences in the collection and there's periods which the museum collection just doesn't cover. So it was a means for from Anna County Museum, the Inniskillings, which is the uh, Fusiliers Museum and Derry Museum Service to come together to collect together and share their collections um, for the purpose of the exhibition. So that item was bought as a result of that project. And what's interesting is it tells a story of George Irvine from Fermanagh who became a Protestant rebel and the, the contrast between him and his brother William, who s- served in the First World War. And what the project did is they, they brought that postcard into an education pack for schools where they asked school pupils to consider the, this, these, these two narratives emerging from the one family. And they also, they also brought out um, a response from a local newspaper owner who described... George Irvine as a traitor who tried to stab our army in the back while they were fighting in France. So again, that aspect 
brings to our attention the different perspectives on the period and allows us to discuss it in a way that hopefully is far more constructive. Lisa, that's almost an example of the the messiness of of history, uh, of how complex it is and how how an object like that postcard can carry so much freight and tell us so much when we look at it and consider all the detail around it. I think that maybe important about some of the contributions to the book is that they seem to be on quite uh, small, very focused topics, and yet they can open up a huge amount more about our understanding of the past. So Orla Fitzpatrick, for example, she her essay in, in the book is about photographs of the widows and children left behind after 1916. And she's looking in particular at the way the Catholic Bulletin published images of the widows and children of the dead of 1916. And then how, through analysing the photographs then, she shows how they're presented very much as respectable and middle class and how this altered public perceptions of the rising. So through quite tight analysis of of this imagery, she opens up a whole world around class, respectability, dress, the support for the rising and so on. Objects and images are often a way in to understanding much wider worlds. And it's not just as was the the messiness of history, but at times the difficulty of, of curating that messiness and getting some kind of clarity around it I mean, and you must have been really conscious of that in in approaching the making of of this book no absolutely and i think that um i think we can see through through a lot of the studies that often it's the the specific context within which people were operating that maybe made it difficult for them to to shift their understanding so for example there's an essay in the book on the origins and subsequent life of the 1916 exhibition at the National Museum of Ireland in that uh, Brenda Malone and Lara Joy, they discuss how originally the, the director of the museum um, in, in the 20s and 30s was uh, very much against collecting any artefacts associated with the rising because his image of what a museum should, should do was to do with artistic merit or scientific merit and he felt that the collecting of objects just because they were associated with the rising was overly sentimental treating just ordinary objects as almost sacred uh, which he was very much against and it was actually left up to individuals to to collect the objects associated with the rising until later on and then that forms the basis of the historical collection and something Brian was saying earlier At the same time, the National Museum, the way they arranged the objects they collected in relation to 1916 was to make the rising seem more conventional than maybe it was. So uh, the way they categorised the uniforms and the arms associated with 1916 was almost like uh, a military museum. As, As we know, the rising was a lot messier, more provisional. The uniforms were often homemade, for example. On that point, again, the difficulties, the complexity of curating and the messiness of history. Let's listen to Pat Cook. Uh, one, of the, one of the feelings that developed very, very rapidly in managing these two spaces is how can you understand the power of ideological history unless you recognise its emotional content and power? And the thing about the sense of place, the sense of place associated with Pierce and the Hermitage and of course, Kilmainham Jail and the men who were imprisoned and died there is 
one of the great motive powers of history is emotion and feeling. So one has to give people access to those emotions without drowning them in it, in a sense, but giving them a sense that, you know, it's not an easy thing to die for anything, something that you believe in. Because at the height of the revisionist argument, it was almost as if these men were dying almost as an afterthought. Oh, by the way, blood sacrifice is what I believe in. So that's just something, just just a, an inevitable way to end life. But if you look at the last letters of these men, which were on display, you realise that they were. It was a messy ending for a lot of them. There's there's five pounds in the bottom drawer. You should take that. Uh, there's my watch. There's and they were then they realised they were leaving their families in the lurch. The married ones among them, and they're very poignant, heartbreaking letters. And sometimes his, people are overtaken by history. The vertigo of First World War history kind of brought them to this point in 1916. And here they were with like six, seven hours left to live in this place, making their peace with history and with their families. It, was, it wasn't at all as seamless as it, was, as it was meant to appear. And when you look at the objects, like the lock of hair that was inserted into the envelope or the button from the uniform as a memento left for the wife, these things give you a much deeper emotional sense of the resonance of history and how actually messy it can be. Pat Cook there. Joanna Brooke. Um, I agree absolutely with what Pat says about objects and their power. The fact that they are very immediate, that people's actual experience and, and engagement with the rising is, is often via objects um, in the present. So if you're engaging with something like your grandfather's medal or you're walking past the GPO on a Saturday night, there's that the materiality, the, the immediacy of that experience is, is very, very engaging. That's how we, we live with um, 1916 and that's how we encounter it. So in that sense, I suppose that objects as well as... Uh, Pat obviously has talked about how art and art installations can, can open up areas of expression and, and engagement around. 1916 but I think that objects also do the same kind of thing in that they allow people to to take different perspectives to consider experiences the experience of 1916 in a a different way um, to more traditional histories they allow us to talk about difficult histories because they're not absolute I mean objects can be read in lots of different ways you know they're not they're not there telling you what happened um, in an absolute kind of a way Um, and they foreground the humanity of, of, of people that we might otherwise think about in the abstract and again Pat mentioned the the last letters in the exhibition at Kilmainham, but an object that I particularly like in that exhibition are Joseph Plunkett's glasses. That brings a very different aspect to the sort of humanity um, of the man. And of course, men making objects, making things is central to, to your own essay in, in the book. Yes. Um, and, and, yes. and it's really interesting on that craft work in, in internment camps uh, between the rising and 1923. Tell me about what the men made and what that says about imprisonment and I suppose also uh, to a certain extent about what men will do when imprisoned. As you might expect, they made lots of objects that reflected their sense of, their emerging sense of identity. There are lots of objects that feature tricolours or the use of green, white and orange, for instance, and imagery relating to the Celtic revival, um, the use of harp motifs or uh, wolfhounds, um, round towers and so on, referencing the antiquity, uh, and sort of pre-Norman antiquity of Gaelic-Irish culture. But one of the things that I was really struck by, and uh, I think the first collection, largest collection that I looked at was the collection of internment camp craft work in Kilmainham Jail. And one of the things I was really struck by was the the number of 
macrame handbags, ladies' handbags in the collection. And I thought, you know, what is this about? Why are these militant rebel men making ladies' handbags? Um, and they're very kind of characteristically, especially when you're getting into the Civil War, of course, very sort of 1920s style handbags. They're, they're visually very striking. And I just thought this was extraordinary. Um, and alongside the handbags, they made other things like tea cosies and brooches and decorative items with uh, referencing, for instance, the, the Tara brooch and so on. Um, internment is obviously quite a it's a disempowering, it's, a, it's an emasculating experience because um, those men would have had to do their own cooking, their own washing, their own mending. And um, in, when you look at the autograph books, there are lots of funny little rhymes around um, what the, those sorts of activities. They, they Clearly, they're quite troubled by them. Uh, I suppose, and just getting back to St. Enders as well, the ideology that Pierce tried to establish around St. Enders and education there, Irish men were seen, they were caricatured in British press, for example, as kind of lacking the essential attributes of an idealised sort of Victorian Edwardian manliness. And of course, Pierce in, in St. Enders was trying to establish Irish manhood as boys and men as being self-disciplined, valorous, courageous, honourable, etc., etc. All those kinds of very Victorian ideals. And by doing that, he was trying to say that, look, we, we're, we're not just emotional Celts. We can be in charge of our own future. We can. It, it was a way of legitimating, if you like, the rebels' call for self-determination. The rebels, when they were interned, were, were really trying to generate a sense of themselves as men. Obviously, they were finding it difficult that they could no longer provide for their families, but they, they still needed to retain a sense of themselves as, as, as honourable, honorable, brave, courageous men who, who wanted to have some sense of self-determination over their own individual futures, but also the future of their, their nation. And one way of doing that was actually by putting women back into their box. Women obviously had been very centrally involved right through the, the years running up to the, the rising, through the rising itself, and then uh, during the later the war, war of independence, of course, in the Civil War as well. And I think that by presenting women as minimising, if you like, the, that aspect of women's role by representing as really interested in the kind of trappings and trivialities of the home, it was easy to sort of put women back in their box and therefore kind of create a, a stronger sense of difference between men and women that um, perhaps supported men's claims to this kind of idealised sort of patriarchal vision of Victorian manhood. Um, I think they mostly sent these objects home. I did, I did wonder if they used them to create a home from home in the camps. Um, but contemporary photographs and, and drawings suggest that actually the camps are quite Spartan. So they're not using material culture to create homes for themselves in the camp environment. They're, if you like, kind of rejecting the camp environment as a kind of a, a transitory image of um, their own kind of um, suffering. Although it's um, not impossible that they might have used some in kind of theatrical performances and we've already talked about theatrical performances at St Enders and we know that in the camps they also um, engaged in various kind of theatrical and performances which involved fancy dress and they didn't have women so so sometimes the men dressed up as women. Lisa you have a particular interest in the role of ceremony and the ceremonial and in your own essay you look at ritual religion and the performance of memory in the Irish Free State and I'm intrigued by that idea of the performance of memory what do you mean by it? The essay looks really at one particular site. It looks at Arbor Hill, where the executed leaders were removed to after, after being executed in, in Kilmainham. They, they were removed there in the dead of night and buried in a quicklime pit that, that had no marking. 
in terms of the immediate performance of memory, we have with the release of the Irish Military Archives files last year, we have the witness statement from Joseph Lawless, who says that when he was interned in Arbor Hill during the War of Independence, a British NCO told him exactly where this pit was because it wasn't marked at all and it was deliberately unmarked by General Maxwell because he said otherwise it would become a martyr's shrine. So I suppose he he was mindful of the way, say, Bodenstown operated at the time or in particular grave sites had become the focal points of nationalist pilgrimage. So anyway, Joseph Lawless and some of his, his comrades start gathering at that part of the prison yard and saying the rosary every day. And, and in that they are performing a memory at a site that even though it's un- invisible, in some way they materialise it as a grave so I suppose in that sense, it's material culture, even when it's not evident, it, it can be made present through, say, gesture or ceremony. And that's something I'm particularly interested in. And then in the dying days of the Civil War, the National Army start holding what becomes an annual ceremony again at, at the gravesite in Arbor Hill which is, in the early years, invitation only and army only, actually, in the first few years. And I suppose what's interesting there in terms of the memory that's performed is these ceremonies are not held at Easter, as we know, a movable feast, so the the date might shift every year, and not held in April at the actual anniversary of the rising, but on the anniversary of the deaths of those who are buried in Arbor Hill. It always takes the same format, which is basically a requiem mass for the dead and then military ceremony around the graves. It's always held within a religious context and in relation to the dead rather than the foundation of the Republic, because there's the Covenant Whale government who are, who are holding these ceremonies. And obviously they can't really fully lay claim to the dead of 1916, even though they physically have their graves, they can't claim to be absolutely the natural heirs because they haven't declared a republic, they're in charge of a free state. And I suppose what's interesting there as well is that the the relatives of those who are buried there refuse to attend these ceremonies because of the post-Civil War context. So again, it's a it's a performance of very selected selective memory and it focuses on the dead and it provides a religious context for that remembrance uh, rather than say a political or social or cultural one which indeed would be more messy as, as we've discussed earlier. Brian uh to commemorate is to forget uh, is something that you've talked about and it's it's a fascinating idea this notion that it, maybe it's easier to build statues to create uh, almost a facade of memory uh, that allows us to to forget the reality of death uh, murder killing and the horror that war and conflict can bring well it was uh, something i came across first of all in um, alan bennett's play the history boys where the boys are brought to the local cenotaph and uh, they're asked by their teacher, well, what is this about? And they say, it's always oh, about remembering the First World War. And he said, no, these, these monuments are about forgetting. By building these monuments, this is where we can go in November and we can remember the monument. And, you know, it's also calm and serene that we don't have to think about the terrible thing that happened to millions and millions of men and society's culpability in that you know it was society at the time that sent their men and told them this was a good thing to do and I just thought it was interesting in terms of peers because 
Pierce has, in his writings, has very many challenges for us, particularly in the areas of, I suppose most famously, in the idea of cherishing the children of the nation equally in the proclamation, but also his ideas about education, which are, are very challenging indeed. And what I found interesting is within the, the new state, how, how these ideas are not really implemented at all. But at the same time, Pierce isn't forgotten because he's everywhere. His image is everywhere. As Bertie Ahern famously had famously, yeah. of, of Pierce in his office. Yeah. At, at that period, you know, it's the period of the Celtic Tiger, a period of enormous change. And I think the idea of having Pierce on, on the wall always struck me as a way of saying things might be changing, but we've got Pierce on the wall. So we're, you know, we're still in contact with the past. Uh, so particularly in the area of education, I think it's, it's interesting how little of what Pierce was imagining for education came to fruition in the new state. And indeed, if anything, I think um, things went backwards. Uh, somebody asked me once, you know, has, you know, how, how did uh, Pierce's educational ideas, were they implemented? And I said, well, you know, Pierce was all about having well-funded schools f- with a wide curriculum, he said that the, the the thing that was the deadening hand on education was this emphasis on results and, and exam results. You know, at the same time that all these things were ignored, those classrooms probably had a picture of Pierce up on the wall. Something like the, the Oliver Shepherd statue then would be a different thing, wouldn't it? In, in I think it comes back to that idea we were talking about earlier about the desire in those early 1916 exhibitions to create something that looked kind of respectable with uniforms and guns and, you know, in, in, in a military tradition. This uh, bust commissioned by uh, the Office of Public Works at the time from Oliver Shepherd. Pierce is depicted very heroically indeed. It's, it's very much kind of a, in the Grecian-Roman um, tradition. He's in a toga. There's, a, there's an olive uh, leaf pinned to his uh, tunic. For the new state, I think it was a way of giving them respectability and giving them a kind of a heritage so that they could feel themselves the equal to the other nation states uh, in Europe at the time. But what I think is really ironic about it is Oliver Shepherd was a very good friend of Pierce. Um, he taught Willie Pierce in the Metropolitan School of Art and used to visit St. Enders. So he knew what Pierce looked like, but I suppose they felt strategically that that's what the nation needed Pierce to be at that time. And maybe that's what the nation needed Pierce to be. I also think it's really interesting that again Pierce gets represented in 1966 on the 10 shilling coin. It's the only time that a, 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 a human figure has appeared on Irish uh, coinage. It, it's a reference as well to that Roman and Greek tradition of you know the emperor's head on the on the coin. And I think in 1966 it's a, it's a way of saying to the world you know we've we're 50 years old now we're we're an established state. Uh, ironically, uh, back in 1913, Pierce wrote quite a lot about um, the head of George V on, on Irish coinage. Uh, and he said that it should be an affront, that these symbols are actually really important. So there's an interesting irony that the next figure, human figure to appear on an Irish coin was actually his own head. So it's something I think he would probably have appreciated. <laughs> Making space for himself. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Crook, I, I, you mentioned earlier that you know there's a difficulty at times finding material in Northern Ireland relating to this period. I wonder, has there been any call out for material in these years for people to donate to museums? Are we seeing... Uh, material coming in for the first time. And what we're finding now, and we this is very evident for the First World War, is these local exhibitions curated by local people 
down to the point that the local people are writing the text panels rather than the curators acting as the experts. The locals are coming in, writing the text panels, bringing in artefacts from home. And there are objects slowly coming into museums, but they love their objects. So if objects are in personal family ownership, very often they stay that way and individuals are very happy to loan to museums for a period, but they bring the objects back home and museums are quite happy to work with people in that way. But I think what's very striking in Northern Ireland and what's becoming very evident is that remembering up here is very purposeful and very deliberate and it's extremely planned. And what's coming through very much is this notion of ethical commemoration and coming out of every sector is this idea of trying to remember together in a constructive way. So what we plan for, what we can plan for for 2016 is being meticulously planned for. But of course, we cannot predict what way 2016 will be remembered. I think it will be one of the legacies of this period for Northern Ireland that we'll all look back on in the future is that deliberate approach to curatorship. We know 2016 will be controversial up here, but we're doing the absolute best we can to plan for that and plan for sort of inclusive, shared remembering as best as possible. Lisa, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, this, the, the past, we always see the past through the, the prism of the present and, and the past can shed light on now. Uh, but there's this inextricable link between, between the two. So I wonder how you think the contents of this book may in some way enlighten the present and and enlighten our understanding of of the period. Hopefully the the essays in this book offer a different way of understanding the rising. Since the rising, I think we're very conscious that 1916 has been remembered and been mobilised in very different ways. Because there are multiple perspectives in the book, rather than maybe that that binary between revisionist and non-revisionist that Pat Cook refers to, Hopefully it, it, it opens up the rising in terms of what the person on, on the street might have felt or thought or remembered about the rising and maybe takes it away from just ideas of statehood at an official level. Brian, what, what would you hope the book will, will communicate and carry? What, what made me very excited was the importance of, of material culture as a way of remembering. For a long time, I think it was kind of seen as the poor relation in terms of historical sources. Uh, I suppose referring to something that Lisa said, what's very interesting about material culture is that often it's something that's coming from ordinary people. Most people don't record their lives, don't write diaries, don't write uh, accounts of their own past. And in many ways, what they do is they invest physical things with their memories. So in some ways, material culture and by exploring these objects and what they mean to people, it allows for kind of a a broader range uh, of experiences to be represented certainly in terms of purely scientific academic history, can be something that's very hard to represent. That, that For me, that's one of the great strengths of the material that's been talked about in this book. It opens up new avenues of remembering and ways of remembering. Brian Crowley, Lisa Godson, John Brook and Elizabeth Crook, thank you all very much and thanks also to Pat Cook. Making 1916 Material and Visual Culture of the Easter Rising is edited by Lisa Gonson and Joanna Brooke and is published by Liverpool University Press. From me, Vincent Woods, goodbye. Art Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon in the Onloan. 
And on next week's programme, Vincent is in conversation with Rufus Wainwright, who also performs some of his songs. This event was recorded in collaboration with the US Embassy's Creative Minds series during the recent Sligo Live Festival in the Model Arts Centre. That's next week on Arts Tonight.